Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'd like to begin today to thank fellow saloners Lynn N., Nina L., Gary M., Stephen F., as well as a very generous donation from John H., and uh, all of whose donations will be used to help offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. And so uh, I thank all of you very, very much for uh, helping us get these out to everybody. Now, last week, my podcast featured some words of wisdom from six men who began first exploring psychedelic medicines in the 1950s. Our elders, we call them. But when you think about it, this new era of psychedelic research and exploration, well, it only dates back to uh, sometime around 1947 or so. In other words, uh, we are now only at the very beginning of what I'm hoping will become an age in which human consciousness is regularly amplified through the intelligent use of these powerful medicines. And when that age arrives and is in full bloom, well, then the 20th and 21st centuries will most likely be seen as the foundation years, the bedrock of the psychedelic consciousness movement, and that finally at long last leads me to my point. Today, our so-called psychedelic elders may actually be someone who is, well, not very old in terms of human years, but who, uh, nonetheless, has covered so much psychedelic ground that their physical age doesn't even matter, because they obviously have become an elder. And uh, in my opinion, that's the case with today's speaker, Nishay Devano, who we've actually heard from already here in the salon in several other podcasts. And today we're going to get to hear three more short talks that she's given. Now, just to remind you, Nishay Devano is a postdoctoral fellow in digital humanities at the University of Puget Sound, where she teaches classes on psychedelics and literature. Nishay is also working on a book that's uh, titled Chemical Poetics, The Literary History of Psychedelic Science. Nishay was uh, also a 2015-2016 research fellow at the New York Public Library's Timothy Leary Papers, as well as a research fellow with the uh, New York University Psilocybin Cancer Anxiety Study, uh, with which she participated in conducting a qualitative study of patient experiences. She actually received her Ph.D. in 2015 in comparative literature at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, where she focused on the study of psychedelic philosophy and the literary history of chemical self-experimentation, uh, what you and I call trip reports. <laughs> and uh, she's also a founder of the Psychedemia Interdisciplinary Psychedelics Conference and is the former editor of This Week in Psychedelics, which was a reality sandwich column that reported on psychedelic news in the media between uh, 2011 and 2013. Also, uh, Nishay is a founding member of the MAPS Graduate Student Association, and as you'll hear in the second short talk that I play, she's uh, also earned her wings as a psychonaut as well. So, now let's listen to a little storytelling by Nishay from Symposia's Psychedelic Stories in Brooklyn, which uh, took place the weekend of Horizons uh, 2015 conference in New York City. 
And Psychedelic Stories, by the way, is an ongoing series by Symposia that provides a forum for people to uh, share their experiences with psychedelics and how they've impacted their lives. All right, and now we are very pleased to have another friend of Symposia, uh, Nishé, who recently got her uh, doctorate in wow. was the technical in com- technically in comparative literature, but really it was a study of the history of psychedelic literature and the past centuries, which is fascinating because whenever you have some person who tells you, "Listen, I know the first person to do this," or "I was the first person to do this." There's always somebody before them. And once you start reading the literature, you find out humans have been tripping ever since we, before we ever left the plains of Africa. And so she dug into all the old stories of all the old trippings we did and saw how we did it. And so now, one of her stories from her adventures. Hey guys. Uh, it's nice to talk here. Actually, the only reason I got my PhD uh, studying psychedelic literature is because of Horizons. It was five years ago in 2010. I came to my first conference. It was my second year of my PhD program. And I knew I had all these personal interests in psychedelics, but I thought I had to keep that under wraps. But I walked into Horizons, and I saw that there was this movement in academia to actually bring these conversations back into open, you know, above-board scholarship, and I realized there's no reason that this should stay just in science, and so I decided I was going to, you know, do my own psychedelic studies in a literature field, and Penn's literature program is in the top five in the country. It's an Ivy League. They were extremely supportive of me. I uh, recently got a, a graduate teaching award out of something like 600 nominations, they gave 10 awards, and they awarded me for teaching psychedelic literature classes, because Woo! the students were so, so happy with the... <laughs> so, so I'm not going to be talking about my stories tonight, just talking about other people's stories. I, uh, so my, the book that I'm working on that comes out of my dissertation research is called Chemical Poetics, The Literary History of Psychedelic Science. So I'm not studying, there's a psychedelic literature that's trippy, that kind of has a psychedelic aesthetic to it, but I'm specifically looking at trip reports and the literary history of trip reports and that process of how people convey unprecedented experiences in language and the way that they can communicate it to other people. Because language is designed as something that's between people to describe things out in the world. And so if you have an experience, in some cases like if Shulgin invents a chemical, Nobody in the history of humanity has ever tried that chemical before. So there's no pre-existing language to convey the content of that experience. And so I just became interested in the way that poetry, creative uses of language, and metaphor are really central to psychedelic science research. And this is something that I think we should talk more about, because the language of science cannot capture the full extent of the psychedelic experience and what's going on there. It's one paradigm, and it's one paradigm that does a lot but it definitely doesn't do everything. So in this past year, uh, the New York Public Library a few years ago acquired most of Timothy Leary's archive. I spent the entire month of August taking photographs. I took 20,000 photographs of documents, and I only got through a tenth of the total materials they have available. He's, he kept absolutely everything. There's the original Concord Prison Experiment trip reports. There's correspondence between all of the you know kind of founding mostly founding fathers of psychedelic science. And so I found this interesting correspondence between Leary and Gerald Hurd. 
uh, from dated April 10th, 1961. And he said, at the, this is Leary writing, at the height of the mystical experience, communication is unnecessary and indeed impossible. And this reminds me of uh, Aldous Huxley's line that trying to get people to answer questions about tripping when they're at the height of their trip is sort of like trying to give a questionnaire to someone who's making love. It just doesn't really go with the experience. And so I said, one of the great challenges in our research is after communication. How can we describe it? The limitations of scientific prose become so apparent. My experience with psychedelics has made me less satisfied with the abstract and general terms and more comfortable with terms which are concrete, specific, and personal. In writing up our research, I've been experimenting with new modes of communication. The results, as expected, vary in effectiveness, but there's reward in the trying. So here you see psychedelics are actually operating as a catalyst for the evolution of language, which is in turn the evolution of consciousness. It pushes the boundaries of what we can say, what we can think, and what we can communicate. So one of those experimental descriptions is uh, in this other letter I found. This letter is uh, from Leary to the poet George Andrews, the beat poet, and while George was living in Tangiers, Morocco. This is dated 1st of May, 1962, so after that other letter I just read. So Leary writes, Dear George, your letter arrived out of a clear blue sky, like a bolt. How on earth can I answer your question? And what does it mean if I tell you that I've seen the beginning in a mushroom vision, capital B beginning, by the way, where there are all kinds of strange things going on and very different to what we read about in history books? However, I shall attempt an answer of sorts. In the beginning, all was static. The earth was neither fire nor solid. It was a drop of water on someone's kitchen table, an instant between the action of spilling and some future cleaning up. Or perhaps the earth is a barnacle on a rock formed between two waves, an event of no significance then, created in a vacuum between the ebb and the flow of some unthinkable, unimaginable sea. And man evolved in one billionth of a second, still less will he disappear. And then another wave will sweep across the rock, and another barnacle will be created that is also the center of a universe. But what strange events took place in this one billionth of a second? Cities were built in the image of the human cortex. Religions were invented to explain the kitchen table. The stars are the reflection of distant electric light bulbs. Tangiers is the figment of your imagination. Mushrooms are eternally high. Times Square is a grain of sugar on a plastic hard top. We are in a cave of shadows, a subway ride with other shadows for company. And at any minute we can decide to leave the cave, come out into the sunshine of another existence that dazzles our eyes. But who will believe us when, upon our return to the cave, we tell of another world far more real in its magnificence than the accustomed half-light we call the shadow earth? Here, then, is part of the Platonic parable, which you must read. It is one of the best metaphorical descriptions of man in a state of expanded awareness, of his difficulties to communicate to his fellow man what he has seen beyond the cave, and of his joy, despair, and amazement at all of this. You will find it in the seventh book of Plato's Republic. Hastily and with warmest regards, yours ever, Timothy Leary. So you see this sort of like creative, poetic language. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I read a trip report and I just get these tingles. You know, someone writes something and I'm like, whoa, like I feel that. Like someone just experienced something and put it in language in a way that isn't just telling me about it. It's helping me feel what that person was experiencing. And so you fast forward to the early 90s when Anne and Sasha Shulgin wrote Peacall. 
And you have a, a, a Sasha Shulgin was describing Aleph 1 when he was self-administering and testing it. And he said, you know, rather than try to rem- remember and describe after the fact what happened, in this case, he did decide to write during the experience. And he has, you know, he starts out very measured, you know, slight alteration to vision, that kind of thing. But then as you go on with the time markers, the language gets more and more far out, more and more philosophical, more and more experimental until you get to something like this. If all this is in all of us, it must be everywhere in the galaxy. And if nonverbal insight can be triggered chemically, then its chemistry must be universal, intergalactic, the infinitely effective catalyst. This is the truly intergalactic communication by chemistry, not radio or light or x-rays or binary codes, chemistry. And he leaves that there. He's, you know, he says, maybe a scientist might say that's not the most objective language to be using, but that's data from the experience. Our la- our, the, the poetry that results from these altered states is the scientific data that we're working with in a lot of cases. And so it makes sense to have, because I was actually working with the NYU study that was looking at the transcripts of people who are describing their life-changing psilocybin experiences. And so, you know, having medical people come together with literary scholars and all the rest to kind of collaborate and try to unearth, like, what the heck are we dealing with here? Like, none of us individually knows. So it's this communal project of collaboration and exploration. So I'll just end with another quote from Anne Shulgin describing, you know, one of her altered states of consciousness. And you can see how language gets tripped out in her attempt to explain something that can't be explained by normal language. From the upper left-hand corner of the universe, there came a greeting from something which had known me and which I had known since before time and space began. There were no words, but the message was clear and smiling. Hello, dear friend. I salute you with respect, humor, love. It is a pleasure with laughter, joy to encounter you again. Thank you. I was uh, very pleased to learn that Nache had been able to spend so much uh, time and work with the Timothy Leary archives that are now located in the uh, New York City Public Library. If you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you most likely remember my stories about the day that I spent going through that amazing archive while it was still located in the uh, hundreds of boxes in two storage sheds uh, in Northern California. In fact, uh, I think that in one of Bruce Damer's talks here in the salon, he tells a story of how he recovered Timothy Leary's library from the uh, dumpster after the New York people threw most of his books away including things like uh, first edition of Dune that was personally inscribed to Leary by Frank Herbert. But uh, that's another story. As Nache just said, the Leary Archive is truly amazing. So if you're ever in the city with some time on your hands, well, that would probably be a good thing to look into. Now uh, we're going to get to learn a little more about Nache and how she navigated her way away from the intention she earlier had to focus her education on Middle East politics and uh, ultimately instead being awarded a doctoral degree with a focus on psychedelics and literature. Uh, Hopefully, if you're out there on the edge of the tribe somewhere yourself right now and you're maybe questioning your own ability to do whatever it will take for you to 
create an interesting life for yourself? Well, then take heart, because I think that you're going to find a wonderful example here in what Nishay had to overcome in order to just do that for herself. We have Nishay, who is uh, not only an excellent uh, diver into the literature of psychedelics, but also she brought a lot of her students along, uh, which is why she has a fan club in the back. Let me get you a mic. Nishay has one of the rare privileges of being able to teach in an academic setting about psychedelics, which is a wonderful, a wonderful spot to be. All right. And so a round of applause for Nishay. When I was growing up, I was really, really not at home with myself. And I had I battled with really paralyzing social anxiety. I had to eat lunch in the bathroom in high school because I would have panic attacks walking into the cafeteria. I had crippling obsessive compulsive disorder. If you looked at my notebooks, I would have some sentences that were written over 10 times. They were just bold and black because I would have a thought that made me feel uncomfortable and I would have to go back to what I was doing before I had that thought. And it really got in the way of my leading a functioning life and being able to focus coherently on projects and goals and that sort of thing. But when I went to college, at first I decided to do the practical thing, the practical kind of career. And when I first, uh, the semester that a friend introduced me to LSD, I was taking international uh, relations, introduction to macroeconomics, American Arab world, intermediate Arabic, and I had just given a down payment to transfer to the University of Chicago to study politics in the Middle East. And then I took acid, and (laughs) now my life is about psychedelics. (laughs) So I I wanted to read just a few clips from my journals describing experiences right after. So this is describing my first really powerful LSD experience. I, I wrote this the summer after my freshman year of college. She was falling farther, still farther, beyond herself, losing herself, perhaps forever. But in losing herself, she was merging with, beginning to understand, forever. She was falling farther and farther into darkness, into nothing, would scream if she knew if she could, as her body was screaming far away from her now. But through the darkness was a point. Was it the point that was speaking? Was it the point beyond words through the darkness that she saw? But the point exploded, was explosion. The explosion of everything in color, merging with darkness as light, darkness as light, blending with darkness in every direction, direction in every dimension, in a moment beyond time. And she saw her body, herself in that point, as one point in one direction of one dimension, existing for a moment of time as one moment of light, an explosion of light through darkness. It was energy, electricity itself in every direction, and she saw herself as one part of it, as one small, infinitely small part of it. And I I just thought it was fascinating that the most profound experience of my life was an experience that was I was forbidden to have. That didn't really sit right with me, and so I've continued to kind of explore this topic and uh, increase the the dialogue around psychedelics. And after that, I had a brief, well, very passionate love affair with DMT, very stormy love affair with DMT. And in my... uh, 
I had a really hard time getting it to work. I didn't know anyone who was interested in it. It was just me and the DMT Nexus on my computer and a pile of crystals in front of me, and it was a lot of like hit and miss. But then I figured it out, and one day, I every on every hour at the hour, I smoked, had an experience, came down, said, oh my god, what the fuck, and then did it again. And so this is the description of, uh, of the, that series of experiences. It began with a song, something I remembered hearing before, but couldn't remember from where. I saw into a world that I remembered having born into. They told me that our maturation process was prophecy, but I didn't understand what that meant. It was like there was a god inside of me being born, and some kind of new age was beginning. There were aliens making adjustments to me, fine-tuning. They said that they'd been waiting. They told me that there's something special that I know how to do, and that I needed to find the others so we could all work together. I traveled through so many dimensions and levels of consciousness that it's really quite difficult to write about. They were teaching me. I tapped back into a narrative that began a long time ago, and suddenly I could remember and understand my past experiences. I remembered things that never happened in this lifetime. My body there was expansive. I could still feel my normal consciousness, but there was so much more that I usually didn't experience. There were these great gelatinous blobby creatures, and I knew how to feed them. I was tapped into this universal energy matrix, and I knew how to convert it into nourishment. It was like I was nursing them. There was a spaceship, and it it had to kind of unfold and unpackage itself. They needed me to help with something. There were people there, and they helped me do it. She needs someone to tell her when, one said to another, and they told me when to swallow and when to turn my head. I entered another dimension with more gelatinous creatures, and they told me to breathe and keep my eyes closed and swallow. I could feel liquid all around me. It was as if their dimension had to go through these transformations in order to make room for ours to grow. Things were happening that needed to be done for the transition. The humans told me that I was a perfect vessel of some kind, and they hooked me up to this infinitely wise creature, something like a seahorse. It had to adjust to me, like it had just woken up. I could feel its consciousness next to mine, and it was different from mine. So every hour at 45 past, I would smoke again and return to the same worlds, the same faces, the same story as it was unfolding. I'd previously seen people building some giant structure in a dimension next to ours, and I saw that they were fitting it up to our dimension. At one point, there was a woman strapped into some kind of organic machine, and she was chatting chatting with me really casually, telling me about her family and her day as she was working. I was learning to speak psychically, and I told her this whole adjustment thing was kind of hard. The woman told me that she understood. She said, oh, honey, I know. It's a strange thing becoming part of an organism. (laughs) The other people explained to me that they were working on pulling me through, that that's what they do. They do this often, almost as if they were the people in Zion pulling me out of the matrix for the first time. They said they'd come find me, and that in time, I would find the others. There were witches and shamans, midwives at the borderline, between the two hits and before I went through. I noticed them as I, first, as I held my first hit, spirits in the room. They told me how to transition. The shamans appeared in my room towards the end of the day. It was like I was watching some kind of ritual. They were blessing me, saying prayers over me, initiating me. There was one woman that showed me a bird. She told me that she was sending it after me to watch over me on my journeys. And she said that she was sending very small things through, small creatures to help me. That was my 10th breakthrough total, probably the 8th of that day. So that was that night. But otherwise, I keep going back to the same places, seeing the same people. As time went on, I began encountering humans more and more frequently. At one point, after finishing some kind of transformation, I was at this ceremony, and this intergalactic general of sorts was congratulating me on joining some kind of order. People wanted me to do things for them everywhere I went. I started getting really confused and didn't want to deal with them. 
I demanded that someone explain to me in English very clearly what was going on. But after I broke through again, so many people were rushing towards me that it got overwhelming. It was almost as if I were a celebrity. One woman was sprinting after me, but I shook my head and chose to return to my room. There were these creatures in the borderline then that sealed off the dimension from mine. I was frustrated and asked them why no one was explaining what was going on. They looked sadly back at the woman and said that she was supposed to talk to me. I felt horrible, but I couldn't go go back there, and that was the end of my DMT. There are a few other recurring dimensions I've seen. One is a very bright, mostly white dimension with shifting blocks with colored symbols on them. I see them sometimes when I haven't smoked enough, so I can see into that dimension and see people laughing and running around, but I I know I'm in my room and can't go there. Sometimes in those not enough instances, they laugh at me playfully and close the door, the blocks folding to shut me out. When I first went to these places, I knew very distinctly that I'd been there before. This has all been so paradigm-shatteringly real that I can't discount these experiences without discounting all of my experiences. I'm leaving possibilities open and trying not to jump to conclusions, and I hope to find the others. So... bizarre DMT things I wanted to add. One time I was with my boyfriend at the time, and I smoked DMT, and I was suddenly in this room surrounded by entities, and this light energy jumped out of my chest, and they were all congratulating. I saw my my boyfriend, they were congratulating us on being the parents of this light energy, and it was a really beautiful experience. Hard to explain, obviously, but I came back, and I was so overjoyed. I wanted to tell my boyfriend what had just happened. And I started describing the scene, and he interrupted me and said, yeah, no, I was there. And it was weird because I had seen him there, but I assumed that it was what he meant to be represented to me in my head. But I thought it was super weird that I had seen him, and he said he was there, and was able to relay the same information about the scene that I just experienced. One last thing that uh, definitely stood out amongst my experiences. One time, I was at this kind of tribunal and they cleared some aspect of this dimension for evolution, and all these people rushed out to gather up all these reptilian beings that were parasites, and they had to transport them in a spaceship to another dimension so that this dimension could, could grow and evolve. And a few weeks later, I was visiting with a friend who was really into kind of new age ideas, and he said, there's this great podcast, I really think you should listen to it. And I started listening, and some, some guy that channels information, and he started talking about how yeah, right now they're rounding up all these reptilian beings and taking them to another dimension so this dimension can evolve. And I was just really weirded out by that. It's like, you know, what are the chances? It's a pretty, pretty uncannily similar situation. But despite all of this weirdness, I wanted to end with a, a warning. You know, it's like, I, I kind of went too far with the DMT. I became very, I would say it's, it's the only drug I've ever been addicted to. I was so obsessed with it. It's all that I thought about for a while. And it became something I didn't, I didn't just approach it reverently or with very much intention. And one day, I had this experience. I was halfway broken through, very out of it, and suddenly I noticed that there was this red liquid on my hands. And I looked down at my bed, and this red liquid was pooling up, and I looked at the walls, and all of the walls in my room started bleeding. And then I got really scared and ran into the hallway and looked down, and all the walls were bleeding in my house, and I ran outside, and the sun was just about to go down. It was the day before Halloween. And I sat outside for hours and couldn't go back inside because I was so afraid. But a few weeks after that passed, I was still kind of fishing for DMT. And I said, okay, it was just in my head. If I know it's in my head, then I can still use it. But I chose to do it at a time that wasn't good. I had work to do. It wasn't a good environment. 
And halfway through smoking again, I heard this horrible sound. It sounded like hell opening up. And I closed my eyes and I said, I was just in my head, you're just trying to scare me, you can't scare me, you can't scare me. And then it started getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And then I realized that that sound had been my hair catching on fire from a candle. And I was right next to some uh, curtains, and I easily, easily, easily could have caught the curtains on fire and the house on fire. And I patted my, my hair, and this huge mound of hair was on the floor. And all I, for all I knew, I had like, completely burned all my hair off. And it was so horrifying. And I was, at the time, I was like, life will never be beautiful again. This is so, so terrible and so against, like, so opposite of the beauty of DMT that I experienced earlier. But as time went by, it kept, it felt like it was a kind of built-in uh, check or safety mechanism. It's like I was veering in the wrong direction with it, and DMT was like, hey, I don't think so. So that's not how you're supposed to use this. And so, yeah, just encourage everyone to explore, to think creatively about the possibilities and implications of their experiences. And yeah, now I teach at a higher dimensions in literature class because I think it's really fun to think through think through some of these storylines. So thanks a lot for, for listening. I really found Nishay's trip reports to be most wonderfully refreshing. I don't know about you, but I, for one, have actually gotten somewhat tired of only hearing about machine elves and self-dribbling basketballs being seen in DMT space. Although, uh, for the most part, I've refrained from my own descriptions of what I experienced there, I applaud Nishay and, uh, well, and everybody else who has broken away from what has almost become a mantra for describing a DMT trip. Maybe it's just my Irish love of language, but I'm very much looking forward to reading and hearing from Nishé as her linguistic and psychedelic powers continue to grow. I think that uh, you can now see what I meant about her. Uh, Like many of us who have gone before her, Nishé has uh, earned her psychedelic credentials the hard way, you know, one trip at a time. In a way, uh, I see her marvelous exploration of DMT to be right along the same lines as what the McKenna brothers did at La Chirera. The final talk by Nache that I'm going to play for you today was presented at Symposia, Envisioning a Post-Prohibition World, which was held at the University of Massachusetts Amherst on April 18, 2015. And uh, this talk is also the basis for an extended article that Nache wrote for Symposia magazine, which I'll tell you more about after we first listen to her talk about coming out of the psychedelic closet. And so now I want to introduce uh, Nache, who is one of our friends. She also helps uh, helped organize the Psychedemia conference, which was great because they had posters there and a, and a wide swath of presenters. And she's also a teacher in the academic system at Penn. She teaches about psychedelic literature and is one of the most well-read people I know in the earliest parts of, of the psychedelic history. I mean, for them, William James using nitrous oxide is kind of the latest stuff that they talk about. She really digs deep. And humans have been getting high for a long time. And the Shea can tell you about different writers who have done it. And she's also given us Somewhat the subtext for this conference. Last night we had our psychedelic storytelling. And it was just people standing up and saying, this was my first time. This is how it helped me. This is how it affected my life. And it's all these people coming out of the closet and saying, this is what worked. And that's the kind of thing. Just like the gay movement 
looked to the civil rights movement and said, what worked for you? How did you gain rights for yourself? How did you demand rights in this society? And now our job is to look back at the activists who went before us, to look to the, to the civil rights movement, look to the, to the gay rights movement, and see what worked for them. And coming out of the closet worked. Having someone like Michael Pollan writing in the New Yorker works. Having famous academics coming out and just not just saying, I put give psilocybin to mice and this is what happens, but to say, I take psilocybin with my friends in the spiritual setting and this is how it works on my heart. And so Nishé is pushing that kind of model through a very, really one of the hardest paths. It's easier to be an underground practitioner who is surrounded by lovely people like yourselves. It's much harder to be in academia with a bunch of annoying eggheads who think all drugs are bad. But she's going through that path and she's forcing her way through, and I think it's one of the most noble things you can do. And she has a she had she brought some of her students along, which is an impressive thing too. teacher is that a bunch of, of her students came during party week at Penn to come to this conference to support their professor. And so I give you our great friend, Nishay. So the, the question of identity arises from the psychedelic experience itself. Who am I? How do you answer that question? I'm a mother, a wife, a teacher, a scholar, and I'm also a psychedelic woman. I first heard the phrase psychedelic woman during a talk by Annie Oak at the Horizon Psychedelics Conference. It resonated with me, and I started to think more about the intersection of psychedelics and identity. This presentation is the result of five years of thinking deeply about the parallels between psychedelic identity and the LGBT rights movement. During this talk, I'll just three main questions. First, what does it mean to identify as psychedelic? Next, what parallels can be drawn in the LGBT rights movement? And finally, what does it mean to come out as psychedelic? So first, what does it mean to be a psychedelic person? Right, so Sasha Shulgin writes in the beginning of PCAL that for many thousands of years in every known culture, there has been some percentage of the population which has used this or that plant to achieve a transformation in its state of consciousness. Going back even further, the recent discovery of a 100 million year old psychoactive fungus supports Mike Jay's argument that we've been taking drugs longer than we've been human. <laughs> the intense stigmatization and criminalization of psychedelics is a recent phenomenon. But I want to return to Shulgin's phrase, some percentage of the population. There are some people for whom psychedelics are more than just a fun time on the weekend. Take Anne Shulgin's description of her first masculine experience, also from Peacock. The funny thing is that despite all the newness, there's something about all of it that feels, well, the only way I can put it is that it's like coming home. As if there's some part of me that already knows, knows this territory, and it's saying, oh yes, of course, almost a kind of remembering. My friend Becky semi-jokingly compared this experience to receiving a letter from Hogwarts. You go about your life thinking you're a muggle, and all of a sudden you discover a part of yourself that actually existed all along. But not everyone has this kind of reaction to psychedelics, and that's okay. And just like someone can be gay without ever having sex, I believe that some people are psychedelic without ever taking drugs. But I discovered that this comparison of queer and psychedelic identities is controversial, after I first published some thoughts about it in a 2010 Reality Sandwich article, 
Reactions were extremely polarized. Um, so some people wrote to tell me how much the comparison resonated with their own truth and their struggles. But other people were deeply offended and felt that the appropriation of LGBT dis- discourse trivialized LGBT struggles. I'm certainly not suggesting that the oppression of psychedelic people is identical to the oppression of LGBT people. But the continuing struggle of one oppressed group is not sufficient reason to avoid discussions about other kinds of systemic oppression. Which raises the question, are psychedelic people actually oppressed? It's an injustice that people like Timothy Tyler are serving life sentences without the possibility of parole for the non-violent charge of conspiracy to possess LSD with intent to distribute. Many murderers and rapists get less time than that. Tyler considered LSD to be a sacrament. He's a Grateful Dead follower who was locked away in a federal prison where for two decades listening to music was forbidden. Another deadhead was Red Walker, who died in prison this past December after serving over a decade of a life sentence. People who choose to take psychedelics run the risk of losing their jobs, being disowned by their families, and losing their children to state custody. Those are very real and very troubling consequences. So yes, I think this this discussion is important. I also think it's important to address the criticisms against it. Last summer, as I was preparing a festival workshop around this topic, someone wrote me to criticize the comparison of taking a drug with being queer, a comparison that she described as very dangerous and regressive. Her choice of words is telling. From her perspective, Being queer is an identity that someone is born with. But taking a drug is something that people choose to do. It's not essential to who they are. So on the basis of her reasoning, the gay rights movement is allowed to draw on civil rights discourse, but psychonauts aren't allowed to draw on gay rights discourse. This person positioned herself as an authority on the subject, uh, as an LGBT activist who has tripped and been to Birmingham. She had witnessed firsthand how non-essential psychedelics are, and I believe that's true for her, but I don't believe she is in a position to speak for all psychonauts. To consider a different angle on her reasoning, here's an alternative scenario. What if I've been involved with multiple women during my life, but I don't identify as a lesbian? If someone told me that I couldn't be with another woman ever again, it wouldn't be a big deal to me. But does that give me the right to go to a lesbian and say that, therefore, it shouldn't be a big deal to her? My psychedelic identity is personally a bigger part of my life than my gender identity or my sexual identity. Consider for a moment the LGBTQIA acronym. It ends with the letter A, which stands for both ally and asexual. An asexual person is someone for whom, by definition, sexuality is not the most important aspect of their identity. So even within this acronym, there is an arrow that points to identities beyond it. While we're here, let's also consider the letter T, which stands for transgender. The transgender movement has taught us that we need to believe people when they say who they are. If I say I'm a psychedelic woman, who has the right to tell me that my experience of myself is false? In the process of thinking through these ideas, I decided to look more deeply into the history of the gay rights movement and its reliance on civil rights discourse. Something surprised me. The gay rights movement had to defend itself from criticisms that were essentially identical to criticisms being directed against psychonauts today. For instance, some people say psychonauts don't have a right to claim that they're an oppressed group. Psychonauts are mostly privileged, wealthy white people who just want an excuse to have hedonistic parties, right? 
Compare this to legislation debates about gay rights from the early 1990s, as described by Michael Bronsky in his book, The Pleasure Principle. Bronsky describes the view that gay men and lesbians did not need special rights because far from being disenfranchised, they already were wealthier, had better jobs, more leisure time, and more disposable income than almost any other group in the US economy. For many in the mainstream, the privileged economic status of homosexuals was conflated with their already established view of gay people as pleasure seekers and sexual libertines. <coughs> being gay was seen by many as a deviant lifestyle choice, but gay people weren't convinced by this argument. Michael Nava and Robert Dowdoff set out a defense of the alliance between gay rights and civil rights in their book, Created Equal, Why Gay Rights Matter to America. For our purposes here, I swapped out the author's original race and sexuality terms for my own sexuality and psychedelic terms. The argument is still valid with these changes. Take, for instance, this altered quote. The special character of sexuality within a society and of the gay rights movement that grew out of it cannot preempt other movements for civil rights. <coughs> Some members of LGBT communities are understandably sensitive and protective about the routine appropriation of their particular historical experience and the particularity of the extraordinary movement they carried forward to challenge their oppression. Nevertheless, the movement's claim was to a common set of principles that must apply to everyone. If women, racially and ethnically diverse groups, LGBT people, and now psychonauts rush to the standard first carried by the African-American civil rights movement and subsequently by the LGBT movement, that is not stealing but believing. Those who are so quick to denounce the appropriation of civil rights by movements based in gender, sexual orientation, physical, physical ability, and other modes of identification probably need to examine their own record with respect to human differences other than race or sexuality. The authors suggest that the key contribution of the gay rights movement to the history of civil rights and civil liberties is its re-emphasis on the individual, an individual asserting personal rights to personal freedom for personal choice about the personal life. They continue, the labeling of gays as degenerate and unnatural is the same kind of labeling that has always been used to justify the denial of rights to individuals belonging to minority communities. Remixing the authors again, people who are quick to shoot down the possibility of a psychedelic identity deny the validity of personal experience when it is at odds with convention. In effect, psychedelic men and women are taught that their experience of themselves as decent, productive, loving humans is false because drug use is unnatural and sinful. In the face of this, the act of coming out as the acceptance of one's fundamental worth in the face of social condemnation and likely persecution. But it is common for members of oppressed groups to resist alliances with other groups. Andrew Solomon describes this phenomenon in his book, Far From the Tree, where he explores what he calls horizontal identity categories, identities that people don't necessarily inherit from their parents. He writes that deaf people didn't want to be compared to people with schizophrenia. Some parents of schizophrenics were creeped out by dwarfs. Criminals couldn't abide the idea that they had anything in common with transgender people. And some children of rape felt that their emotional struggle was trivialized when they were compared to gay activists. The compulsion to build such hierarchies persists even among these people, all of whom have been harmed by such hierarchies. But Solomon cites the theory of intersectionality as an alternative to this trend. Intersectionality is a theory that various kinds of oppression feed on one another. 
that you cannot, for example, eliminate sexism without addressing racism. Solomon quotes Benjamin Jealous, president of the NAACP, who said, if we tolerate prejudice toward any group, we tolerate it toward all groups. We are all in one fight, and our freedom is all the same freedom. I argue argue that it doesn't serve us to cherry-pick which identity groups are worth protecting and which are not. We need to focus on a common set of core principles and honor the right of individuals to make decisions about their own minds and bodies. Which brings me to the final section of my presentation. What does it mean to come out a psychedelic? I'll start with my own case. When I went to college, I didn't understand why the military's don't ask, don't tell policy was such a big deal. Why did people need to talk about their sexuality at work? But then I moved from Bard College, a hippie school in the woods, to the University of Pennsylvania for graduate school. Suddenly I didn't know anyone who'd had meaningful psychedelic experiences. I felt that I needed to keep that part of me hidden, and it was an extremely lonely time. I learned then the hard way that having to hide part of who you are can have a deep psychological impact. Coming out as psychedelic was profoundly liberating. Instead of studying romantic poetry because of my secret interest in psychedelics, I started researching poetry explicitly alongside psychedelics. In my case, this doesn't mean that I continue to use psychedelics today. As a mother and a teacher, the current political climate makes the risks outweigh the benefits. But psychedelics helped me through crippling social anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder during my first year of college. And they shaped my entire worldview and life's path. This isn't something I would easily, easily forget. But coming out as psychedelic entails a whole spectrum of possibilities. It could mean describing past use, but it can also mean striking up a conversation about the latest research out of NYU or Johns Hopkins. It can mean forwarding a recent article in the New Yorker or New York Times to your mom or your boss or your colleague, or even planning a trip to drink ayahuasca in a country where it's legal. Taking a different tack, you can also choose to be a psychedelic ally rejecting the current state of the drug war while personally abstaining from psychedelic use. (coughs) What's important here is that people are mindful of the decisions they're making and why. Sometimes it can be more strategic to keep things under wraps. If you teach children or require a security clearance to work for the government, for example, it might make sense to hold some of your interests and experiences back. But if you're holding back on coming out because of a knee-jerk fear reaction, I encourage you to reconsider. Sometimes the risks are low, and sometimes the risks are worth taking. The abolition of sodomy laws in this country did not eradicate homophobia, and anti-psychedelic prejudices will still exist in a post-prohibition world. By banding together, we have the power to own our narratives and to shift the cultural dialogue. And as people have noted at this event, it's important to create safe spaces where people can come together to share their ideas and experiences without fear of persecution. Many cities host regular psychedelic discussion groups. In Philadelphia, we have Theorizing Psychedelics, which meets bi-weekly. San Francisco has the San Francisco Psychedelic Society. And Baltimore has its psychedelic seminars, just to mention a few. I encourage everyone here to either get involved with their local groups or create a new group for people to come together on a regular basis. Terrence McKenna argued that sovereignty over one's consciousness is the next great civil rights struggle. After sexism, racism, and homophobia, Coming out about one's psychedelic identity, interests, and or experiences is an important part of redefining the public perception of psychedelics and of those who choose to experience experience their effects. But this debate is ultimately much much bigger than us. 
In, in the words of Nelson Mandela, for to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. At the end of the day, despite all differences, everyone deserves our compassion and respect. Thank you so much. And again, questions, the mic is in the middle, uh, and I'll, I'll throw one in to get started. What's it like, what's it been like for you uh, coming out of the psycho closet, and how have you seen others struggle with that that you've seen in the academic circles, or professional circles that you, that you see? Well, when I applied to graduate school, I applied, my writing sample was about philosophy and fractals, because I really wanted to go somewhere that would let me be a little bit experimental and do different things. I mean, but I wasn't explicit about psychedelics, but the fractal, there's a certain subtext there. Um, and I mean, my school has been extremely supportive. We got a $10,000 grant from the medical school to put on psychedemia. Some of that money went to bring in Burning Man artists to talk alongside uh, researchers from Johns Hopkins. And um, recently I was nominated as a finalist for a teaching award of 350 graduate students, say 30 finalists. So not only do they let me teach classes on psychedelics and higher dimensions, but they're also, you know, very supportive of that. So I think, I mean, part of what I've been doing over the past five years is going to conferences, talking to other students, and there's a mass graduate student listserv that is also open to undergraduates if you are very serious about going into this field, and it's a great support network and a way to kind of bring in people from different disciplines and have a conversation. And a lot of people, I feel like they just don't know that they can study this stuff in school. I mean, if people, if I could have done a psychedelic studies major in college, I definitely would have done that, you know? So, <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, do you have a question? Yeah, I do. First, I just want to thank you so much for your, your talk. Um, I'm going to confess that at the beginning of your talk, I felt a little skeptical. Um, the, there was something about the word oppression um, in this context that, that I it hadn't really thought of and, and didn't click immediately for me. Um, and you you pretty much you've, you've sold me on, on your perspective. It worked really well for me. Um, what? Let's see. I think what I'm wondering about is. So, so I think, you know, certainly in, in terms of, you know, the, the examples of imprisonment that you offered, you know, those are, are just terrible and, and, you know, shouldn't happen. Um, the, your point about what I'm going to call sort of solidarity amongst identity movements seems um, really important to me. The, the next piece that comes to my mind is I often think of rights and responsibilities and wonder about the potential... Of, um, of psychedelics and psychedelic work to um, open all of us up um, to other possibilities, other identities, become more tolerant and supportive, and that that may actually feed back into all of these rights movements and um, other movements, environmental, social justice. So I'd just be interested to get your thoughts on that as another piece of this. Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked that. Thanks, because um, Catherine McLean's research at Johns Hopkins, uh, they showed that psilocybin use uh, led to an increase in the personality category of openness, and that um, refers to a general open-mindedness to different perspectives, the, you know, increased um, curiosity about the world and that sort of thing. And 
Uh, Matt Johnson, also at Johns Hopkins, he recently spoke at Penn, and he said it's the only study he knows of where a laboratory procedure led to a measurable change in personality. And that's a pretty major thing. If people are going to be more open-minded to difference, you know, that's a very worthwhile cause to champion. So, and thank you, Catherine, for, for your work on that as well. Thank you very much for that talk. I'm probably going to come at this question from a different context than you were necessarily getting at, which I, I really appreciate. It was very intriguing. However, to just play a little devil's advocate, which I'm sure is probably a thought that's crossed your mind when dealing with this, what what about the the, the personal quality to sacred beliefs, and not necessarily the opposition to wanting to share that with others, but almost like this anonymous nature of having a deeply personal held understanding of, you know, call it your psychedelic identity, your religious beliefs, or whatever, your connection to the spirit. But is that, where does that come into play with, with this coming out of the closet thing where you almost rather not talk about it with other people? Someone actually asked me that a week ago, too. They were, they were mentioning that. And I, I said, I mean, I definitely think that, you know, if that's how you feel and you find it personally meaningful to, you know, keep that as a private thing, I think that's definitely, you know, your right to do so. But I also think that, like, for a lot of people, the process of languaging, as Terrence McKenna would say, your psychedelic experiences, it's a way of grafting those onto your life narrative in a way that's meaningful in the long term. Because it's like you can have an experience and then not put it into language and sort of have a sense of what happened, but you might forget a lot of the details. And what happens in that, you know, really creative wrestling of these altered states into a language that the language wasn't built to describe those states. So you have to be creative. You have to kind of weave different metaphors and approaches together. And so A, I think that's a worthwhile project in itself. And B, by doing so, you make it meaningful to you in a way that helps integrate the experience for the long term. But I think if you you feel personally that holding it as a private thing, it works for you, I definitely think that that's a valid approach as well. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Thanks for a great talk. Um, I recently was reading this book called Anti-Woman about how during the um, civil rights movement, a lot of African-American feminists had to kind of choose um, to, to instead support the civil rights movement um, instead of the feminist movement. And so I was wondering, I heard you mention Annie Oak, or someone of that name, and I'll look up her stuff, but could you say a little more about the lot in life um, for females coming out of the psychedelic closet and how it does, I think, did you face a different um, set of oppression? Definitely. Yeah, thanks for thanks for asking. That's something I think about a lot. And um, just uh, recently, Graham Hancock released a new psychedelic anthology of essays called The Divine Spark. And I was looking at the table of contents, and it was it was something like 27 men and one woman. And I was like, are you kidding me? You know, you have this, like, boundary-dissolving substance, and yet this, like, hugely patriarchal, you know, maybe perhaps unconsciously, but, you know, influence. And some, uh, one scholar that was printed in that book wrote me to try to explain the situation to me, and he said, well, women tend to re- talk about their personal experience, they don't generalize into research, and this is an anthology for research. And then he encouraged me to make a women's psychedelic anthology book. 
But I don't want to write about women and psychedelics only. And I don't think that there should be psychedelics and women psychedelics. So it's definitely, I mean, that's like a big place to, to kind of work on uh, breaking down those boundaries. But I really applaud Symposia for going out of the way to include women speakers. Because oftentimes you'll just end up with a, you know, a roster of white men, and that's it. And that's been a big problem. I actually, I got flown out to a conference in Australia specifically because they were having such a hard time <laughs> finding male female speakers. And I mean, but just but when they were specifically looking, the year before that, there was something like you know 40 men and one woman. And even the year where they were looking for women specifically, they still only had seven women speakers. So it's a combination between you know having spaces that women feel comfortable speaking in where their voices won't be overridden and they won't be, you know, talked down to or told that they don't do research, you know, things like that. And it's a matter of, you know, encouraging other women to stand up and share their stories and, you know, be told that your contribution is important and valid and really important, in fact. So thanks, thanks a lot for asking that. Okay, so this is not actually a question, but it emphasizes that exactly what you just said about the value and importance of your uh, contribution. And I think I said this a little bit on Friday, but I wanted to say it in front of everybody here, how influential psychedelia was to who I am today versus who I was, what, three years ago now? Um, and I just want to honor you for like sticking your neck out and making that happen. And I remember that I said to her uh, while I was there, I said, I think this is so great because if this something like this had come along and I was an undergraduate, it would have completely changed the trajectory of my life. And then, even in my mid-30s, it changed the trajectory of my life. So, <laughs> thank you for coming. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I think that now you probably understand exactly what I meant in the beginning when I said that Nache may be young, but in many ways she is already one of our elders. If you think about it for a moment, uh, many of the stories and legends surrounding the brothers McKenna sprung from their now famous trip to La Chirera when they were both very young men. Need I point out to you that even though Nache, uh, while at least relative to me, is also very young, she's uh, nonetheless older than the McKenna brothers were at La Chirera. As Emerson once said, meek young men grow up in libraries, believing it their duty to accept the views which Cicero, which Locke, which Bacon have given, forgetful that Cicero, Locke, and Bacon were only young men in libraries when they wrote those books. <laughs> so uh, how old does one need to be in order to become a psychedelic researcher? Well, in my opinion... You're that age already, so what are you waiting for? And step one is to go to arrowid.org and begin reading about whatever strikes your fancy. Follow your bliss, as Joseph Campbell often said. Now, this last talk that we just listened to is also the basis of a written piece by Nache in the Symposia magazine. And I'll link to it in today's program notes, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.com. And if you haven't already checked out the symposia.com, that's P-S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-A, symposia.com website, well, it's a treat that you owe yourself. 
In their magazine section, you'll find Nache's article titled Psychedelics and Identity Politics, along with Why I Came Out of the Psychedelic Closet by Daniel Miller, and The Reagans, Socrates, and Hypocrisis by Dorian Sagan. In the main section of the uh, symposia site, you're also going to find videos and a link to information about the Psychedelics Because hashtag that uh, they were promoting during the month of April, but which, uh, it seems to me, is a really good hashtag to use all year long, which is what I'm planning on doing, and I hope that you will too. So uh, check them out if you get a chance, uh, both at symposia.com and at psychedelicsbecause.org. I also want to uh, let you know about a remarkable new film about Walter Pankey, who, uh, as you know, is famous for leading the research project that's popularly known as the Good Friday Experiment, and uh, which was part of his thesis project under his advisors at Harvard, Timothy Leary and Ram Dass. Now, this new film by Susan Gervaisi, titled Psychedelic Mysticism, isn't yet available for purchase by the general public, but it will be soon. For now, you can uh, see the trailer at lazygfilms.net. I've had a chance to see an early cut of this film, and I found it to be by far the best and most thorough treatment of that experiment and uh, of those times that I've yet seen. While I thought that I knew a lot about those days and those people, well, for me, there was some new and extremely interesting interviews that are not to be missed if uh, you're into what I guess can now be called the very early days of this renewal of psychedelic research. Experimental mysticism is what Pankey called his work, and uh, I think that after watching this film, you'll understand exactly what he meant by that. The film itself is titled Psychedelic Mysticism and was an official selection of the Alhambra Theater Film Festival in Evansville, Indiana, as well as at the Utopia Film Festival in Greenbelt, Maryland. And uh, it's going to be screened the evening of June 25th at the California Institute for Integral Studies in San Francisco. So if you're in the Bay Area on that evening, uh, well, you might want to stop by CIIS and meet Susan, who's going to be there, as will one of the original participants in the experiment, Mike Young. And uh, they're going to participate in a panel discussion following the film, along with Bill Richards, who uh, is a Johns Hopkins psilocybin investigator and uh, who was a close friend and colleague of Walter Pankey. Uh, All in all, I think it should be quite an interesting event. Finally, I'd like to let you know about a truly fascinating new book that you may want to put into your Amazon wish list or to pre-order. It's by fellow saloner Marcus Rumery and uh, legendary elder Frank Ogden. I've been fortunate to see a pre-publication copy of it, and I'm sure that uh, even if you have only a very small psychedelic library, that uh, this is going to be a book that you'll want to have. The full title of the book is Shamanic Graffiti, A Hundred Thousand Years of Drugs, A Hundred Years of Prohibition. And uh, it's divided into three parts, with the middle part focused on the work that was done from 1957 to 1975 at Hollywood Hospital near Vancouver, Canada. Hollywood Hospital was a truly unique project in that, well, it was a private hospital generating a very lucrative business in which they used massive doses of both LSD and mescaline to uh, treat alcoholism, among other things. 
And as far as I know, this may be the only well-documented and detailed account of that important early psychedelic research, uh, thanks largely to the nearly 1,000 files of Ogden's that uh, he gave to Marcus for historical background. Hopefully, uh, we'll get a recording of Marcus discussing this book that I can play here on the salon when the publication date becomes a little closer. But if you're interested, you should uh, put in a pre-order for the paperback, just in case that this isn't a large printing, because uh, I'm sure that it's going to be a collector's item one day. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.